Well, last week I did an amazing job and got through about 40% of the lesson that was supposed to be a one, one day lesson, but it's your fault. You, uh, you had way too much uh, to share and interact. No, I love that. I hope, I hope that continues. Um, I actually want to start this morning um, with another verse. Let's go together to Romans chapter 5, uh, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. I uh, prayed a little bit of it this morning uh, in the prayer. Maybe you caught that. Um, but one of the fathers of the church, certainly of the Protestant church and the movement of Protestantism, um, was, of course, Martin Luther. And, um, and uh, much of his studies and what began the Reformation were his studies in Romans. And maybe you know this. But go to this verse, and I, and, and I think there's, there's several things here. I want to pick it up in verse 3, and I'm going to read through uh, verse 6. And um, maybe you've had these questions. I have. Maybe, maybe I, bet, I think I have them probably on a weekly basis. You know, things like, hey, why, why was I not a believer sooner in my life? How much time was wasted before I really became, you know, saving faith and knowledge of Christ or... You know, why, why, uh, why did Christ not come a couple hundred years earlier? Maybe where would we be um, if we had two or three hundred more years of, of his ministry, you know, post-Christ ministry? Or, you know, hey, why, why Lord, are you tarrying? Why, why do we have to wait and see the devastation of morality and the, the decay of the family and the decay of the church? And, you know, why, why wait Right? Well, I mean, have you ever thought of that? I, I, I do. Um, I, you know, at, at 45, I think an, an awful lot more now of, of my heavenly citizenship. Um, I look forward to that possibility. I, I pray that, you know, Lord will come before, before too long. Um, and we are, you know, in, in our Lord's prayer, right? We pray that judgment would come. Um, look through the Psalms, and, and David's heart is poured out onto those pages, and, you know, Lord, save me from my enemies that, you know, would pray for your deliverance, pray that you come. Um, well, this is an, an incredible section of, of not just the reality that Christ justified us by his works through faith in Christ, but also what perseverance brings about. And if there is ever an example of perseverance, if there ever was left to be an example of character and of hope, it is the church. It is what, what was ordained to be the bride of Christ, the church. And we sitting here today are one of the greatest, greatest evidences of saving faith of Christ's ministry and the existence of his church um, declares it. Absolutely declares it. And, and before we get into this verse, I'll add one more comment I shared with, I think with Bob actually last week after this class. You know, I, I, I'm members of different associations and members of, you know, and have been members of different, you know, clubs and, you know, even... Um, you know, ancillary and outside church organizations and stuff, but you know what I'm most proud about by far, by far, and just brings a smile to my face, is we are members, both locally and universally, of the greatest institution ever created, by far. 
And that is the church. That is God's church, Christ's church, where we sit here this morning, and universally the saints who are worshiping Christ on Lord's Day. There is no other greater institution that was ever thought of or was created other than the church of Christ. And what a, what a comforting thing that we, regardless of what circumstances have had gone on or are going on, you know what? We have each other. We have Christ and we have the fellowship that we have as Christians um, in Christ. And if we are students of history, we know that he has preserved his people. He has absolutely preserved his people. So I want to just share this with you. This is a great verse, an encouraging verse um, for the believer that having been justified by faith, we have peace. That's pretty... And I'm just going to pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 5 because we can't. And I'm going to read through verse 6. And if I stand here and talk longer, I'm just going to add more verses, so let's get into it. All right? Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. Mm. With God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have been obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And there's, there's an old, a whole lot more here in this chapter. It's one of the great chapters of justification in the Bible. Um, but what I, I think is important for us, or what's encouraging for us, is the progression, the progression for the believer that happens to us, um, one, after salvation, but two, after enduring tribulation, during difficulty, during trial. Um, perseverance, this is a Greek word, I taught this um, uh, back when we were in 1 Corinthians, it, it means to hold up under pressure, um, the, the literal meaning of, of it is if you think of, you know, those giant bodybuilders who are in the Olympics and they're lifting, you know, thousands of pounds and, and they're, you know, maybe doing a squat or a deadlift or whatever, the lift is complete when they've lifted it completely above their head or when they've completed the lift and they're holding up under that weight. That is the picture of perseverance, um, for, for us to persevere, to work through um, the difficulty of whatever that tribulation is. And then, of course, what does the per perseverance bring? brings character. Character is who we are. It's the makeup. It's, the, it's the, the attitude and the person, what they embody. Are we characterized by being hopeful? Are we characterized by being joyful? Are we characterized by being glad and rejoicing? Are we characterized by being kind of a bah humbug kind of dude? Are we characterized by, um, you know, and, and I'm not going to, I don't know what he has planned this morning, but, um, you know, are we characterized by fear or anxiety or despair? Are we characterized by hope? Are we characterized by the blessed hope? 
Um, that is what the individual, the Christian, should be characterized by, but that's also what the Church of Christ should be characterized by. A beacon of hope. How many people are driving by the interstate this morning and seeing, you know, how many hundreds of cars are going to pass this morning there and see the cars parked outside? Why are we here? You know, what's the reason? We're here to go and worship our Savior. We're here to enjoy the fellowship that we have, the commonality that we have in Christ, and, and the church, and where we get to enjoy it is in the church that he established. I love this verse in verse 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, at the God-appointed time in history, the actual time, the very hour, the very minute, the very second that was chosen in eternity past for God to save you, for God to save me, or to call you, or to call me, it was at the very right time. Um, it, there was no mistake, there was no confusion, there was no, well, should we filibuster this for a little bit and wait, or should we get a committee together and decide? There was none of that. Um, in God's perfect and pure plan, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's a good reminder for us, too. He didn't die for the godly. He didn't die for those they did not need a Savior. Who needed a Savior? The enemies of Christ. Go to Ephesians 1, go to Ephesians 2. While we were what? Still enemies. While we were dead. Right? And another reason I love about this verse, or this chapter, is it goes on to talk about, hey, you know, a good person might die for their friend, might go try to save their friend or, you know, someone, a loved one, but Christ died for those who hated him. Died for his enemies. Why? Because he loved us. Because he had a surpassing love. Well, how does all that tie in? The key word there was time. Um, God is interested in time. He is a God of time. He is a God of order. I, I, I'm a little bit of a proud father here. I'll share the story. Uh, Brady had shared this with Amy and I, and then he did it again in the car this morning. And and I, and I love this. He picked up one of Pastor Rod's books that he was giving out. Remember that? A couple weeks ago, there was books that were here. And he picked up Ken's Ham, Genesis, Answers Genesis book. And, and in there, there's a section on, on um, does carbon dating disprove the Bible? And so he's reading this, and we're like kind of curious to see if he's really understanding it. I don't know if he is for sure or not, but he's like, yeah, I'm just kind of browsing it and underlining things right now, and I'll study it later. Well, this morning, he shared a verse, or I shared a section in there, and I thought it was so good, and I'm going to share it now, um, that um, if science disagrees with the Bible, we shouldn't reinterpret the Bible. And, and how often we get stuck in, well, we learned this in the news, or we learned this in class, or we learned this in history, or whatever. Well, we tend to adjust the Bible. You know, that, that's, that's kind of where the pattern in history has gone, to go ahead and reinterpret and adjust the Bible. Um, anyway, I, I, that was a great reminder for me, and that God's interest in the church, and interest in the Bible, and interest in the goings-on of 2023 predetermined a long time ago, and we don't need to adjust. Um, so I started this with this question, and Lord willing, if I end on time today, I'm going to give you about, a, you know, an assignment uh, to take home, 
It, it'll be super hard, so get scared. Um, it's, it's really not. It's really going to be more horrible for me. But, but why study church history? So I'm going to breeze through this, but there are a couple of new faces this morning too, so we can recap this. Why study church history? Many Christians today suffer from historical amnesia, historical for forgetfulness. We forget last year, last week, certainly a decade, certainly 100 years, certainly 500 years ago, whatever. Um, but this time between the apostles and their own day is one giant blank. It's one giant gap. That's hardly what God had in mind. The Old Testament is full, full of reminders of God's interest in time. He cares about time. Even as we read in Romans 5 this morning, He sent Christ at the right time. He established the Passover. This is just a... Guys, this is one of so many examples. But the Passover, why was it established? To remember. Uh, it says in Exodus 13, 8, It shall serve as a sign in your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth for, a power, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought you up out of Egypt. And then he provided manna in the wilderness. He commanded Moses to do this. Take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. You know, we, I was thinking about this as I was driving into church this morning. Um, not going to say how fast it was going. But we, today, in 2023, can cover more ground. All right? We can, we can travel, have information, literally, physically transport a letter or some handwritten or some actual physical, historical device faster than even 100 years ago or 200 years ago um, by word of mouth could go. Like we can, we are in this day and age, especially in the day of internet and social media and, and everything, so much information is disseminated every single second so fast. How do we keep up with it? How do we, how do we sift through what is, you know, edifying, what is good, what is, you know, um, Godly and what is not? I, I don't. I don't know the answer to that. Ryan, go I ahead. Somebody defined history as this: his story, mm -hmm. meaning Christ's story, God's story with man. Yeah. Man with God. Right. I would agree with that, yeah. and I think that might be a Warren Wearsby thing. I, I think know, it might be. I, know. I heard it somewhere. Yeah, we got a, a Warren Wearsby expert in here. Um, <laughs> I think that's one of his quotes, but I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, so let's go through the ages, all right? We've broken this up into eight ages, and I'll give you just a taste of, I, I meant to do this last time, didn't get there, so I'm going to say it now, um, so that if I don't end on time, or don't finish this lesson today, I still want to get to it. So the homework will be this. Um, I would love for you to think of something in history, in church history, or even in history, a question you might have, or more clarity on an event, or a person, or something like that, you can write it down and give it to me, or email it to me, and I will try to answer it in this class. I will try to um, weave that into uh, the appropriate time period, or the topic, or whatever that is. But if there is a burning question, and if you don't have any, that's fine too. But if you do, um, I think this is the perfect class, the perfect sort of survey to take up those types of questions. <coughs> in history is everything, and history is everything. Maybe you've heard that before. There's mathematics, there's science, there's geography, there's, you know, everything is covered in history. 
Um, because as we just decided, it is, it is a story of time. So if there are questions or something you have, jot it down, email it to me or text it to me uh, or, or hand it to me and I will try to answer it in this class. And that be, might be fun for you. Um, I want to keep it interesting. I think there's a perception, I don't think, I know, there's a perception of your history class that is kind of like ho-hum, dates and times and people. Well, I'm not going to do that to you. Um, so let's, let's pick this back up. The ages are these, the age of Jesus and the apostles. It makes sense to start there, right? The church began right after uh, Christ's death. Um, the age of Catholic Christianity, um, I defined that word Catholic a little bit last time. Um, I'll hit that again this morning. Then there's the age of the Christian Roman Empire. Um, and I use that term, I'm borrowing this, Christian Roman Empire is very, 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 very loose. It's more to deal with the, the two that kind of melded together um, and had some semblance of Christianity. Then there's the Christian Middle Ages. Um, fascinating time to, to uh, study. I wrote, uh, the longest paper I ever wrote in college was on the, uh, the Crusades. Um, depending on your take on this, there were anywhere from four to about a dozen Crusades. Some of them were just private wars. Some of them were government-sanctioned wars, either by uh, France or by um, large landowners in England and Western Europe. But we'll get to that. Obviously, a famous person in that time period is Charlemagne, played an important part in church history. And, and so we'll hit that a little bit. Then there's the Age of Reformation. Um, this is where church uh, really started to take the form that you um, understand today. Uh, we start to see denominationalism take, take place in this age. How did we get to, you know, Wesleyans and Methodists and Reformed churches and Presbyterians? And uh, how did we get there? Did you ever study that? Or did you ever look at that? Maybe you have. Um, we're going we're gonna to look at where we trace our own roots. We're going to look at where other denominations uh, trace who they trace their roots to, I should say to whom they trace their roots. The age of reason and revival, here's where we really start to see the decay of, um, what I want to say, or attack on, on uh, Christian rule, um, and, and we start to see a shift in, into Darwinism and natural selection and uh, and and into ultimately into science and you know and for our, our young our young people and even ourselves today you know how do we how do we discern um, what is truth and what is not in 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 uh, our science classes or or elsewhere um, you know or is there any the age of progress uh, I think that word progress could be uh, a little bit ironic, um, but really in 1789, this is the French Revolution, this is really where most historians agree that kind of modern history um, begins, and I'll, I'll kind of define that when we get there, uh, but modern history really has to do more with how history was recorded, um, but French Revolution was really the start of modern history and it unleashed new hopes for a common man. Um, there were some great things that happened there, but there's also some major questions that we have to hit. 
And then there's this age, and I love this title, the age of ideologies, the age of ideas. I mean, there is no better way to describe the modern era as the age of ideas or the age of theory. Um, we are in what we call now a postmodern or post-existential modern um, era where truth is not um, truth. It's your truth and my truth are equal. Um, you know, race and gender are, 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 are not necessarily true. And uh, laws of thermodynamics and laws of physics and all of these things are debatable. And even if they are... You know, even if they are logistical or real, that they, hey, why, why can't we change it? Why can't we invent it? Why can't we alter it to better mankind? And, um, and that's the age we live in. Uh, pretty fun. So, let's jump back. And let's go through, uh, pick it up at the age of Christian Roman Empire. This is kind of where I left off last time. Um, so, we talked a little bit about Constantine, but the age is here, and I, I want you to, before we get into this too, um, I think it helps, at least it helps me, when you look at these dates, that you look at these years, 312 to about 590, I can't really conceive that, okay, it's hard to, it's hard to put yourself in that time frame. Here's what might help. Okay, obviously this is about uh, 300 years, roughly the time period after Christ. Um, and, and so you have major events that have happened there. And instead of remembering times, this is how it helps me, I, I, I try to remember it by major events. What major change happened? It's very easy, it's a lot easier to think of History as in, all right, for this 500 years, this is how it was always done. But then some major event or some major change happened in this year. And now for another 400, 500, 600 years, something was done differently. Well, the major change was government. The major change, the major shift in this time period was how people governed themselves. And the Emperor Constantine had a major part in that. He was a major figure also of Christian history. After his own conversion, Christianity moved swiftly from the seclusion of the catacombs, or the old dusty, dingy, you know, uh, churches were, um, are now just really historical artifacts, um, in, especially in you know, Greece and Italy, to the prestige of the palaces. So what moved here was Christianity did not just reside in the churches anymore, but it went to the palaces. It went to leadership. That's different. The movement started in the 4th century because of a persecuted minority. The church by then was very small, um, much the minority compared to Judaism and other religions of the time, most pagan religions. And it ended the century as the established religion of the empire. This is where we can probably trace the greatest, most rapid growth of Christianity. The, thus, the Christian church was joined to the power of the state and assumed a moral responsibility for the whole of society. 
what we can take from this is that Constantine, probably not a true believer. I mean, you could maybe argue that he was. I don't know that his life really um, demonstrated that. But that's not the point. The point is that he saw Christianity as a mechanism to govern morality, to legislate morality, which was different. Um, to serve the state, and I want to be clear here, it was not to serve Christ, but to serve the state, to serve his own empire, he adopted or he refined its doctrine and developed its structure. Um, started to put some, um, what do I want to say, some legs to, uh, to his legislation. Monks arose to protest the secularization of the faith. But when the barbarians shattered the government in the western half of the empire, which is now mostly central Europe, even the Benedictines enlisted as missionaries uh, to the pagans. So this did two things. One, it brought morality into government and into legislation. And two, um, it also caused a, a spread of Christianity, an even greater spread of Christianity. I'll pause if there's any questions or comments on this age, otherwise I'll move on to the, the, the Middle Ages. It's kind of a confusing time period. Um, there was a lot going on here, but I look forward to getting into that here in the coming weeks. Then you have the Christian Middle Ages. Um, this is the Dark Ages. You've heard of this before. You saw... Have you ever seen, um, I should have brought this in, it's really neat, it's really, really cool. I have a program, um, I used to show it in one of my classes um, that I taught in geography on population growth. And one of the, kind of the neat things is, prior to the Middle Ages, you saw uh, population growth. It, it was pretty exponential at that time. And then there was a major, major event that happened in the Middle Ages, do you remember this, called the Black plague or the bubonic plague was carried by nasty little critters remember what it was mostly rats yep and um, and it wiped out a massive um, amount of people um, God used that plague in his um, providence to take out an awful lot of people especially in Europe and in cities especially in cities um, and we'll, we'll get to that when we get there because it also had a great effect on the church, as you might imagine. But anyways, Europe really becomes the center of history in this time period. Europe does. Europe owes mo more to the Christian faith than most people realize. Um, certainly more than what Europeans probably realize today. Uh, but when the barbarians destroyed the Roman Empire in the West, what is now kind of modern Germany, uh, northwestern France, Austria, that, that area. Uh, the barbarians destroyed it. It was the Christian church that put together a new order called Europe. It, re it was really the order of the church. Um, the, the church took the lead in rule by law. It was the pursuit of knowledge. This is, these were our learning centers. Many of our, in fact, many of the um, more... <coughs> what do I want to say, long-standing universities in Europe uh, owe some of their history and their heritage to, uh, to this time period um, because they really spawned out of a pursuit of knowledge that, um, 
that was, uh, that was developed and began in the church. Um, great you know, great uh, universities like um, Oxford really began as Christian centers. Imagine that. It's not what it is today. The church took the lead and rule by law in the pursuit of knowledge and the expressions of culture. Um, in our church now, this is where we start to see more adaptation of church to culture, which was not a great thing. Um, we see it still today in some of our seeker-friendly churches. Well, it's not a new idea. Uh, it's not a new idea. The underlying concept, though, was Christendom, how to further the kingdom, how to spread the gospel, which united empire and church. It had some, it had some bad side effects, too, but I'll, I'll, I'll get into that. It began under a person called Charlemagne in the 8th century, um, but popes slowly assumed more power and more power until Innocent II, not so innocent, 1198 to 1216 was his lifetime taught, taught Europe to think of the popes as world rulers. Later, centuries though, uh, later, however, saw the popes corrupted by power and increasingly militant reformers cry out uh, for change. And then we get into this next great age. So, um, that time period is one of my favorite history classes, just a little side note, one of my favorite history classes ever was a class on military history. It was called Knights and Samurai. And it, yeah, it's really nerdy, I know. Okay, but it was super cool. And in this age, this time period is where we started to see wars not being fought hand-to-hand, face-to-face, but now you could invade a country or a castle or a land and be hundreds of feet or even hundreds of yards away from your enemy. And so what kings and lords and powerful rulers, even the Pope, thought was, you know what? We can expand our kingdom because we no longer have to fight face to face. So bloody. Um, and so even the methods of warfare and military also had a, um, an impact on the spread of Christianity. And we'll get, we'll get to that a little bit, and that was in this time period. I want you to think about that for a second. Today we can sit, you know, hundreds if not thousands of miles away, push a button, send a missile, and destroy an entire city. Okay, not a thousand years ago, you had to go march, or by horseback, or not even by horseback, um, and take days and weeks and years to go invade a place, and then when you got there, um, you fought face to face. You, it was a bloody, awful, um, grueling, think of the biblical times, think of invasion, you know, people avoided war, even though they couldn't, they didn't like to fight. Um, now, war is almost a more convenient way to settle disputes. Well, the Reformation. Um, if I had to choose my favorite time period, here it is. If I could go, I don't know if I could go back. If I, people think about, you know, hey, it would be awesome if I lived in a different time period. I probably would go here. Um, I, I think it would be really, really neat to see um, 
the development, and, and by the way, Christians are the original protesters. Um, I'm not trying to encourage anything here. I, I really, truly am not. Um, Christians, though, are the original. The, uh, the initial protesters against um, violations of, um, what do I want to say, political and religious rule. Uh, the spirit of reform broke out with surprising intensity in the 16th century, giving birth to Protestantism and shattering the papal leadership of Western Christendom. Um, it was at this point that the Catholic Church was at its height and in power, and it really spread across um, all of Europe, uh, even some of North Africa, and, um, and even as far east as places like uh, Turkey and, and Eastern Mediterranean. And, um, and it was with some, uh, some brave individuals like Martin Luther who said, wait a minute, um, we're not justified by works, we're justified by faith, and the Pope is really a heretic. Um, and then he posts his you know, 99 Theses on the door, as the story says, you know, at the uh, Cardinal's <clears throat> Uh, home in Nuremberg, Germany, and all that. What that get him? It got a excommunication, and and it's and then you know, and then you have a reform not just of of uh, Christendom, but also of Europe. There's four major traditions that happen here, marked by the early Protestantism. One that we know obviously as Lutheran, and uh, even some of our theology. Uh, Lutheranism has changed quite a bit, but there's certainly some roots there. Uh, a Reformed theology, uh, the Reformed Church, we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about the Anabaptists, and um, some of you in this area probably know the Anabaptists a little bit. Um, who, you know, what fairly predominant church in our area um, traces its roots to the Anabaptists? Manuel Simons. Yeah, which church is it? Mennonites. And we'll talk about that. Um, and then there's the Anglican Church, which really, I'll give you a quick history lesson right now. Really, this was about achieving a divorce um, because the king, the pope, would not grant a divorce. And so um, out of that unbiblical, ungodly, you know, God hates what? Divorce. Malachi says it. Out of that ungodly desire... One of the kings uh, in modern England created the Anglican Church because the Pope would not grant a divorce because his wife was unable to bear children and, um, and other things. She probably burnt toes. I don't know. <laughs> but um, bad joke. But anyway, he sought a divorce thought, hey, in this day of reform, everybody's forming their own church, Pope won't give me a divorce, I might as well just create my own church. That is your Anglican church. So those are the four primary ones that developed out of the Reformation. After a generation of the Church of Rome itself, led by the Jesuits, uh, Jesuits still exist, do you, you know what their primary function was and still is? It's kind of important to our church history, but it was to study. It was to study and to teach. Um, there are certain Jesuit Catholic schools, like I believe Creighton is a Jesuit school. 
Uh, Marquette, I know for sure, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin is a Jesuit school. Um, I'll get to that, but this, those schools, the purpose of their school traces its roots to this age. It was to study and it was to teach. And these were the people in the Catholic tradition um, who were uh, committed and, to, and given to, um, to that endeavor. And to be a Jesuit in this day and age still is quite a high honor um, in the Catholic Church. Um, anyway, it recovered its moral fervor. Bloody struggles. Wow. This is a bloody, bloody age in the church between Catholics and Protestants followed. Uh, and Europe was ravaged by war before it became more obvious that Western Christendom was per permanently divided. And a few pioneers pointed toward a new day, which we have today, the denominational concept of the church. And I, I'm going to do my best in this, um, in this time period to show you where we have modern denomination and where they develop, but also... Um, there are critical, critical disagreements in doctrine and theology. Um, and so this will help you, um, and maybe even as you rear your children and help them find churches and grandchildren and so forth, um, hey, it's not a bad thing to know where some of the current denominations have their, have their roots. Um, and it'll be a fun study. A book, and I'm not finished with it yet, um, and I haven't picked it up in several months, to be fair, but I will. Um, if you want kind of a, a really neat history of those who have died to preserve the church, uh, Puritan writer John Fox, F-O-X-E, wrote a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it's really today the version that we have is a collection of books and of journals uh, in one, um, in one um, work, in one literary work. But it, um, it really, it's really cool. It starts with Stephen, uh, the very first you know, martyr uh, after the day of Pentecost. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it goes into even uh, some of the early 20th centuries, those who died um, to preserve the Word of God, to preserve the translation of the Word of God, to preserve even the church itself. Um, there, it's a very fascinating book. Some of, the, some of the writings are a paragraph, and some of them are several pages. Um, but it really, really brings to life the sacrifice um, that through the ages, Christians... Have, have died to preserve Christianity. So the age of reason and revival. This is where most of our children's history books and science books take root right here. Um, much of what we know, and I can tell you just from uh, firsthand knowledge of you know, being a teacher, um, much of our state standards, much of our what we get in terms of what is taught and what is not taught in history really is developed out of this, uh, the age of reason and revival. This, is, uh, this age began primarily in the country of Italy. Um, and you have, you know, uh, Newton and Galileo and others who um, kind of are the pioneers of this age of science and reasoning that we should no longer really just trust scripture, that we should no longer really... Um, really put place our faith and our trust in a higher power, but that we should test everything. We should, we, this is the development of scientific reasoning. 
and almost all of us today can cite the order of scientific reasoning, which is what? I know Amy knows this, so you can't say this. Scientific method. Scientific method. Thank you. And what is scientific method? Observe. Hypothesize. Hypothesize. So test, right? Get hypothesize, build um, hypotheses or theories. Then what? Test it and reproduce it. Test and then? Repeat. Repeat. And here's the age of all of that. This is the age of all of those beginnings. The age of, re or, sorry, the age of reason and revival really replaces, really this is where we see the major shift and replacement of biblical, um, even intellect, biblical intellect with biblical knowledge. The age of Reformation was marked by debate among Christians about the way of salvation. Well, if you want to remember this age, here it is. The age of reason was highlighted by the denial of any supernatural religion. Um, this is where we start to see the major, major, and, and now even the shift in the church itself to become more scientific. Um, dark time in the church. But yet... There were some amazing things that happened in the church at this time as well. But respect for science and human reason replaced Christian faith as the cornerstone of Western culture. Where you and I sit today, the, the predominant attitude, um, the, the way the Bible says it, and Paul says it specifically too, but is the, the, it's the, the age and time in which we live, the, the attitude or the thought pattern of the age is directly for us, it is derivative of this time period. Um, many Protestants met the crisis of faith not by arguments, but by the experience of supernatural conversion. Um, this is where we started to get more of sort of the Pentecostal and uh, evangelical Pentecostal uh, movements because it was a reaction. Um, so in history, you always have you know, action-reaction, you have a liberal time period, and then we have a reaction to that, which is a conservative time period. Well, we have that here in this time period as well, Brian. Out of that came the Puritans, right? Yep. Um, yep. And Wesley, was he a little later, or was he right in there? He's right in here, too. Yeah. We'll get, we're going to get to a lot of that. Yep. So in this here, a lot of those folks are escaping political persecution, and they look for other areas. They only, the, you know, obviously... The uh, creation of um, United States happens here, um, but many. Where I lost my spot here. Sorry, but what I wanted to point out here was that the Protestants, many of them, met this the attack of science and reasoning on faith with experiential and supernatural. This is where we get more of an emotional and experiential type of Christianity, and we have to ask ourselves why. Because it was a reaction to the unemotional, scientific um, thought of the time. And, and so, um, we see the development of that. Faith, at this point, was less dogma and more experience. You've maybe had these arguments before. I've had these with people. And you have an argument uh, about some doctrine or some teaching in Scripture. And 
and maybe the person agrees or disagrees, doesn't matter, but they, in the end, they maybe end their argument with, well, you maybe believe that, or maybe scripture says that, but I still have my faith. You know, that's kind of the mentality of the age. I still have my experience. I still have my emotion. I still have what I feel about this subject. Guys, this is kind of the origin, uh, the sinful origin of that, where it starts to become a, a, um, an attitude of the time. Evangelical Christianity spread rapidly by the power of preaching alone. This is one good thing that came out of this. Um, you got... <coughs> powerful preachers, strong preachers of this age who really took uh, a stance against some of the age of reason. And so you have revival. Many of Christians came to see that the state was supported no longer essential for Christian survival. Another point, another important part of this, and who knows, maybe we, we could be back here before you, you know, before too long where the church decided at this point, um, hey, if there's going to be the longest word in English language is called anti-disestablishmentarianism, which is what? Separation of what and what? Church and state. And that was, I want you to understand this too, that that was as much of doing of the church as it was the government. And, um, and so we'll get there, but... One of the good things that came out of this, and we believe this here too, is that um, what governs us is not, you know, obviously there's, there's, there's a, what do I want to say, a submissiveness to government, but ultimately what governs us is our Bible. Many Christians came to see that the state support was no longer essential or really even needed for Christian survival. Much modern Christians could accept religious freedom. Um... I'll finish very fast on these last two. I can do this fast. Age of Progress. This was the shortest time period by far. Um, it unleashed new hopes for common man, just as science raised new questions for traditional Christians. Power seemed to be within reach of the masses. 1914 ends just, this time period ends just before World War I. Uh, for Christianity, this meant that social unrest was added to the challenge of intellectual doubt. So I want you to remember these questions. These two questions um, really encapsulate this time period. How are Christians supposed to meet the needs of urban masses? It is this time period now where you start to see the shift from rural living to urban living. That affected the church. The second question, was man simply a product of evolutionary forces? Now these people are trying to go back and look at what Darwin and others taught and make sense of it. Wait a minute, that's not what the Bible says. How do I deal with that? Christians were seriously divided over ways to face these problems. Without traditional support of the state, many Protestants turned to voluntary societies to minister to the poor and to the oppressed as well as to carry the gospel to foreign lands. We'll get into some of our foreign missionaries, some of our great missionary efforts to uh, derive from this age. And then finally, where we are at. 20th century brought the colossal struggles of political and military giants. Little things you may have heard of, like communism. Those evil people, Nazis. And even Americanism. Much of what gospel is spread across the world today is nothing more than Americanized gospel. And we'll get into that 
uh, a little bit as well. A new paganism appeared and, appear and appeals to the laws of economics, passions of race. Do we have that today? And the inviolable rights of individuals. Christians were forced to suffer, to think, and to unite in new ways, and Protestants reach out to each other in movements of unity. Roman Catholics struggled to update their church, and third world Christians, in other words, the poverty, sort of the, the Afghanistans and the Congos and the uh, Sudans of the world, Christians emerged as the great new fact of the age in the face of an inflamed Muslim world as well. Look forward to all these things. It's an awful lot. Next week, Lord willing, we will study this first age of Jesus and the Apostles. And I think it's going to take about three weeks on that, and then we'll move into the next age. Let's close the prayer and then go to listen to Pastor Aaron. Our God and our Father, again, we thank you for your church. We thank you for Christ, the cornerstone of the church. We thank you for those who you've appointed through the ages, ages to administer to the church and to rule the church, to govern the church. We thank you, Lord, that in your um, infinite wisdom, you created the church and preserved the church. We thank you, Lord, for Countryside Bible Church today, that we sit here in comfort. Um, and we thank you, Lord, for your eternal word. And it's in, it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.